0: We've been talking about the Bible and uh, and basics of the Bible. Um, is the Bible holy? Last week we talked about is the Bible true, a true story? And today we're going to focus uh, different uh, on a different topic uh, and talk a little bit about what theologians call inerrancy. Is the Bible inerrant? Is the Bible perfect? Uh, is, is the is the Bible uh, beyond reproach? So uh, that's our topic uh, for today. And as we get into this, guys, I just need to remind you of the mission God has laid before this church. I would say 90 to 95% of the churches in the world, and I love them, God bless them, um, their mission is a little different than the one, the particular mission God has given us. Because at this season of our life together, God has given us the very clear mandate to inspire non-religious Houstonians to say yes to Jesus to inspire non-religious, secular-minded, agnostic, atheist people in our city to say yes to Jesus. That's what I prepare every sermon for. That's what we program toward. You know, sometimes these sermon series, if you are a Bible-believing born again Christian, these sermon series are not going to be a direct hit for you. You're you're going to wonder why we are why we are rewinding the tape and why we are talking about things that you figured out a long time ago or you think you did. And and, and I just want to ask you for your patience during series like this. And remember that when you signed on as a born-again Christian to be a part of a church that speaks primarily toward non-religious Houstonians, that uh, you adopted that mission too. And so some of the stuff we're going to talk about today and for the next few weeks might not hit directly home with you, but I hope if you are a a, a born-again believing Christian, Christian, that uh, the things we talk about will at least help you to talk to other people who may not share your same convictions about God or uh, the Bible. So if if you're a Christian who's never had any problem believing every word on the pages of this book, the Bible, I believe that uh, this sermon series may not be for you. But if you're the guy who knows just enough about the Bible to know it's not for you, I hope this series is for you. If you're the woman who's heard just enough hate coming out of the mouths of people holding Bibles to know that this is probably something that's irrelevant to your daily life. If you're someone who believes that this book is mostly full of arbitrary laws that control and manipulate people, this is a religious text, just like you know every other religious text, that this is Uh, A book that's about uh, manipulation or about just religious conversion or ideology then I hope this series is for you because the Bible in its truest form is none of those things it is so much more and I pray that we can together reveal that during the series all right so uh, here we go Um, here's the thing that I want to warn those of you who are already sure about your faith and your view of the Bible I want to warn you about this, Uh, I want to warn you not to be that Christian who's so defensive about the Bible and people's questions about the Bible that you argue more than you listen. I want you to be real careful, and I'm talking to myself here too, on certain Facebook threads and Reddit posts and things like that that really get your fire going, that really get you intense and revved up and ready to argue and fight it out with people who don't see the Bible the same way that you do because you think your way is the only way, I want to warn you against being that Christian. Uh, you know, if somebody... Yeah, that Christian. That, 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 is, that is, by the way, what most non-religious people expect of us because they've seen it enough times, especially on Facebook or wherever, They've seen it that they can almost predict it. And so when somebody posts a certain something, non-religious people say to themselves and to each other, look out, here come the Christians. Let's watch what the Christians post, you know, uh, how the Christians react to this because we've, we've become known more for our reaction to things rather than, uh, you know, our, the way that we listen or the way that we empathize with others. So uh, if you're that Christian, if you're the Christian, I call the all-caps Christian because you write your emails in all caps. If you're an all-caps Christian, uh, I have given most of you a, a brown bag. Under your chair, you'll find a brown bag. And what I'd like you to do, if you're that Christian, you can just take it out and you know get it ready. And if you start to feel like it's too intense today, if you start to feel like there's just too many questions that aren't being answered and Pastor Eric's not saying what he should say, and if you start to feel the urge to reach into your pocket and get your phone and start writing your email to me, in all caps, during today's sermon, If you feel a pain in your chest, you know, take this bag out and just. I don't know why this does any good, but they all say it does. So just breathe in and breathe out. Christians, we got to breathe more. Christians, we got to inhale and exhale, you guys, because so many of the things we treat like ultimate issues are not issues of ultimate concern. We can disagree about 99% of the stuff we're going to talk about today. We can go at the Bible completely differently and still end up in the same place. You're going to share eternity with people who don't read the Bible the same way you do. Bible-believing, born-again Christians. There will be people who interpret different scriptures, differently. You might be one that interprets every word on the pages in the King's English as literal truth, and that's awesome, praise God. There will be other people in heaven who do not. So this stuff we're going to talk about in terms of the inerrancy of Scripture is important, it's fascinating, it can deepen your faith, but it's not a deal-breaker for God. And it shouldn't be for us either. Grab your paper bag and breathe in. Breathe out. It's going to be okay. There's different ways... Of looking at the Bible today's question is the Bible perfect I know the inerrancy of Scripture is a big big deal and that's one of the two litmus test questions I get from Christians all the time I'll let you guess what the other one is but the first one is usually do you believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God And so I know this is a big deal for at least one-third of all Americans today. All the surveys show that one-third of all Americans believe that every word of this Bible in its current form is literally true and should not be questioned. For that group of people, you may be in that group, and I love you, but suggesting that any word of the Bible is not, you know, above reproach or whatever... Uh, is like spitting in the face of Jesus. It's just that offensive. Like it's, it's on par with just total blasphemy. It's like the other unforgivable sin, you know, uh, that, that Jesus talked about, like the, the uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, you know. But, it, you know, questioning the Bible for some of you is as problematic. So, uh, w- what I want to talk about uh, today is uh, just where the Bible comes from, where it gets it, its authority. Uh, who wrote it, and why we have chosen to believe the story that the Bible tells. So wherever you are, whether you're in that literalist camp or some other camp, um, breathe into your bag and let's go. We're going to dig into some material here that's going to take us through the next 15 minutes of today's sermon. This is just how the Bible, as we have it, how it came to be. And this will enrich the rest of our discussion. Start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books, 39 books that we have. In the the Hebrew Bible, for Jewish people, uh, those same 39 books exist, but they're in 24 books because they combine books that we've split apart, like 1 and 2 Kings or Ezra and Nehemiah. Those things are just one book in the Hebrew Bible. But in what we call the Old Testament, which could also be called the Hebrew Bible, those 39 books that we have were already accepted as Bible material by the time Jesus walked the earth. So all of that stuff was already decided. Christians didn't really need to figure out what to do about the Old Testament because it was already canonized. To be canonized just means already set in stone as a book of scripture. So uh, we don't know exactly how that process took shape. It was a different process than for the New Testament. It was much less complicated. In the Old Testament times the Jewish community was a very small, tight knit group of people. They lived pretty much in the same place, spoke one language, shared one story, one experience, one culture, and so deciding what's sacred to them wasn't very hard to do. There were a few questions here and there, like whether Esther should be included because Esther doesn't really mention God by name. I can't imagine my Bible without Esther. I love that story, but it was debated longer than some of the other books of the Old Testament. Uh, so was uh so, so was Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was kind of a downer if you ever read Ecclesiastes, and some of the people thought maybe Ecclesiastes is too, is too raw, too depressing to have in the Bible, but I'm also glad they included, you know, e- Ecclesiastes. Song of Songs was debated a little bit longer than some of the other books because you can guess if you're if you're familiar at all with Song of Songs, deeply erotic literature. And so some people wondered, do we want our kids reading this stuff? And so it was debated a little longer. As well, but in general, it was a pretty seamless process that was decided um, between 300 BC and the time that Jesus walked the earth. So, um, uh, the, the process for the Old Testament is a little simpler than the process for the New. The New Testament gets more complicated. Um, the, the 27 books that make up the New Testament um, were written by different dudes living in different places in different languages sometimes, from different cultures to different audiences. So it's a little more spread out, a little more diversified. And so the process of deciding what's Bible was a little more uh, complex, I think. This is how it kind of unfolded. Um, First books of the New Testament that were written were some of Paul's letters. Um, My money is on 1 Thessalonians. Some Bible scholars think it was Colossians, to be the first book to be written in the New Testament. That was later included in the New Testament, right? Um, And so, uh, uh, you know, I think somewhere 47, 48 uh, AD is when uh, these letters started getting uh, sent and passed around. So these other epistles, they refer to letters that were written by guys other than Paul. So James wrote a letter, uh, the letter of Hebrews. Somebody wrote it. We don't know who, but it was written about in the same time frame. And then after that, between 65 and 70 AD, the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel written, followed by the Gospels of Matthew, and luke Uh, there's a whole we know this uh, because matthew and luke borrow heavily from mark Uh, almost everything that's in mark is also in matthew and luke but matthew and luke also add their own uh, edits uh, to mark's uh, gospel their own additional material right so between 65 and 70. what's cool about this to me is that paul wrote his letters his incredible letters Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, all these 13 letters Paul wrote without these four Gospels. Isn't that crazy to think about? Now, he probably had some of the oral tradition, stories being passed down about Jesus. Maybe there were some other manuscripts being passed around, but Paul didn't have the four Gospels written down that we have today when he wrote his letters. The last part of the New Testament that was written was uh, the Gospel of John and the Revelation of John, written by the same guy uh, somewhere in the 80s or 90s A.D., all right? So what we know about what happened next is that by the end of the first century, the churches are being planted and spread out throughout the region, but they're all reading the same stuff. And so by the end of the first century, all four of our major gospels are being passed around to all the churches. Paul's letters are being circulated, 13 of Paul's letters being circulated by the end of the first century. We know this because of some uh, non-biblical historical sources. By 130 A.D., we have this letter from a guy named Justin Martyr that talks about how the churches are worshiping. And he says when Christians gather for worship, they're reading from the Old Testament, and then they're reading from the Gospels. But he didn't call them Gospels. He called them the Memoirs of the Apostles, which is a great, like, Lifetime TV title for the Gospels, right? The Memoirs of the Apostles. And and they read, every time they gathered for worship, they, they read from both Old Testament and uh, the Gospels. By 170 A.D., what you have is the, uh, the, sort of the canonization of the Gospels first. This is 170 A.D., the four Gospels that we know today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are identified by uh, Irenaeus, the bishop of, of the church at the time, as the only authoritative Gospels. Now, your question should be, why, at this point in history, why did Irenaeus feel the need to say these four and only these four are authoritative. Well, it's because in the middle to late second century, other gospels are starting to surface. And they're not old gospels like from the time of Jesus, they're new gospels that are being written. Uh, they're called the gnostic gospels the gnostic gospels are the ones that all the conspiracy theorists say the christians wanted to to hide and subvert because they had all this secret knowledge the christian fathers didn't want you to know about like jesus had a wife and you know maybe maybe that woman and her you know her uh lineage they should be the real you know papal authority of the church or whatever like the whole dan brown novel thing who read the da vinci code in here yeah no, no shame in my game i read it too all right so Those were the Gnostic Gospels that Dan Brown and other conspiracy theorists refer to to say, well, there was a conspiracy here because the Church Fathers only wanted you to know what they wanted you to know. That's not exactly true. The reason Irenaeus in 170 AD is saying, no, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the only Gospels we recognize is because these Gnostic Gospels were basically fan fiction. Any fan fiction fans in the house? Like, you know, you get online and read your own version of, you know, whatever... Twilight thing you love you know and like fans write their own stuff right so what I think was happening in the mid to late second century is that like kids are reading the real gospels then they're like getting high or something and then they're like I can do that give me a pen man I can do that And then they have a go at it. I've got evidence to show you that the people that wrote the Gnostic Gospels were high on something. And this is not atypical for what you read in Gnostic Gospels. This is from the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which is from about the same time as Irenaeus. Uh, This is what Jesus said in the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man, and cursed is the man whom the lion consumes and the lion becomes man. Everybody look at your neighbor, look at your neighbor and go, whoa. (laughs) Whoa. This is the kind of stuff you find in these Gnostic Gospels. Irenaeus and his, and his counterparts are like, you know, guys, this is, this is not true. Not true gospel is not truly Jesus. We have the things Jesus said. This is not it. And so the four Gospels are authoritative, and they are what we look to um, first and, uh, and foremost. So, uh, uh, so, so that's kind of how the, the process unfolded. All right the uh, 27 books of the New Testament really are widely recognized by about 200 or a little after 280 all 27 books in some form or fashion are being circulated among the churches all 13 of Paul's letters are um, being referred to not only as Paul's letters but as scripture by this time Also, uh, 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation of John, all authoritative by the 200s AD. And uh, Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, and Jude were seen as uh, authoritative, but more uh, helpful than like Scripture by this point. Um, That's because there were some serious questions in regard to those last ones and uh, the criteria that they used to piece the Bible together, All right, the New Testament. So the canonization process took place using some real criteria. It wasn't just a crapshoot. It wasn't just a political game. The early Christians used real criteria to determine which books belonged in the Bible, which, which didn't, right? The first of the four criteria that I want to talk about today was something I'll call usefulness, which basically meant the very first churches looked at some of the books and letters being written and passed around and said, How useful is this to us in terms of communicating Jesus to the world? Introducing new people to Jesus. Paul's letters, incredibly useful. And so they were immediately adopted as scripture by the early churches because they were useful to introduce people to Jesus and his purposes for their lives. The revelation of John, however, not as useful. And so it took a little bit longer for revelation to be uh, accepted as uh, biblical authority, a uh, source of biblical authority, because if you've ever read and waded through the book of Revelation, uh, you know exactly what I mean. It's really hard to figure out sometimes what that book is about. You know, it's a little unclear. And so it wasn't as useful. It wasn't immediately adopted. All right? Uh, the second criteria that we'll talk about is the consistency of message. This is the early church fathers and leaders looked at the early writings and said, is this consistent with what we understand Jesus uh, to have come to do, right? So Jesus, the, Jesus came, the early Christians believed Jesus came to save the world by the grace of God on the cross. And whenever whenever our faith, our belief intersects with the grace of God, something happens. A salvation moment happens. But there is nothing that we can do to earn God's good graces. There's no good behavior you can engage in to deserve that salvation. There's also nothing you can do, incidentally, to make God love you less than God already does. There's nothing you you can do, right, to, to condemn yourself for all eternity, okay? So God's grace saves by faith salvation by grace through faith." So, this was the message they wanted to have consistently in the Scripture. This is why it took the Christians a little while to warm up to the book of James. I bet there's 50 people here whose favorite book in the Bible is the book of James, because we're very practical people as Americans, as Southerners, Houstonians. James is a very Houstonian book of the Bible. James is a very like, let's just get it done. Let's just get it together and and act right and uh, be practical and pragmatic, right? The problem with James for the early Christians was that it didn't seem to convey the same message that, that the rest of the New Testament does, that the whole salvation by grace, the salvation as an act of God. James says, yeah, that's all fine. Having faith is fine, but if you're not doing anything about it, then you don't really have faith, do you? So James is always throwing that in, uh, in people's faces, and James borders on something called works righteousness, this idea that you can earn your salvation. So it took the church a while warm up to James. Hebrews, on the other hand, Hebrews is all about salvation by grace through faith, so even though we don't have any idea who wrote Hebrews or where it comes from, Hebrews was admitted uh, into the New Testament. So, the third criteria that we'll talk about then is authorship. I just talked about Hebrews, and we're not knowing who the author was, so it took a while for Hebrews to be accepted, but it was. The reason James finally got over the hump and was included as a part of the New Testament is because James was Jesus's half-brother and that's pretty good stuff to have on your CV you know when you're trying to apply for admittance into the New Testament right that's 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 pretty solid and so uh, he's, James, he's Jesus's brother James ends up in uh, the New Testament authorship association very important fourth and finally Uh, The last criteria was acceptance among the churches. What I mean by acceptance is that all 27 books had already been vetted and accepted by the overwhelming majority of the Christian churches by the time the canon was voted on and set into place. So it was late in the 300s AD that the church finally decided, okay, let's vote on this and make it official. But before that, for 100 years or more before that, the churches had already agreed on which books were authoritative. So there wasn't any kind of like political game. It wasn't about Constantine or any of the stuff Dan Brown talked about. It was about, it was about these criteria, the first three criteria, weeding out the ones that didn't belong in the churches, agreeing on the ones that did and accepting them almost across the board. All right? What I want to say about this process finally is that we believe this to have been guided entirely by the Holy Spirit. We believe the evidence for the Holy Spirit guiding this process, intentionally giving us these 27 books for a purpose, for a good and perfect purpose, for a reason, to show us these 27 books, no more and no less, we believe the evidence for that is in the fruit that has come from the Bible and how it's blessed so many over time so many lives have been changed by this consistent message of salvation by grace through faith no other book has changed the world like the bible has and it's not even close we believe the holy spirit guided this process and gave us all that we need everything sufficient for salvation through these 66 books so for me this whole process adds so much depth to the question of the Bible's inerrancy. This doesn't threaten my understanding of the Bible's inerrancy. This doesn't cheapen or question the Bible's truthfulness or trustworthiness. To me, it adds so many layers and so much depth to it because if you really think about how the Bible took shape over so many years, 66 books, at least 40 authors, 9 or 10 different genres, written over a 1,000 years' time, And there are shockingly few discrepancies. Shockingly few problems in the Bible. Now, there's some, right? Shockingly few, considering the process. But there's some. And as I said last week, the discrepancies that exist in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, actually add to the trustworthiness of this book and doesn't detract in in my opinion right because in my opinion had it been some conspiracy to pull the wool over the eyes of the world and say look this is perfect this fell out of the sky just like this we found it in a field in missouri or wherever you know like if if that had been if that had been our desire we could have done that we could have whitewashed this thing we could have cleaned it up and made it neat and tidy but we left in some of these discrepancies the early Christians left that stuff in because it didn't bother them. They weren't as defensive. They didn't need to breathe into a, a brown paper bag whenever people questioned the Bible because they believed so strongly that the Holy Spirit spoke through it, even with some of the questions people have. I got into some trouble with some vitriolic Christians this week. My little Facebook life was turned upside down this week by angry Christians who needed a brown paper bag to breathe into. Because last week I said, look, look, you... there's stuff in the Old Testament that Jesus repudiates. Okay? You can call it contradicts or whatever word you want to use. Like eye for an eye is a biblical, truly biblical idea that was God's will for the world for a season, I believe. But then Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said in eye for an eye. I'm telling you we don't repay evil for evil anymore. We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Both of these things are biblical. Both of them are true in their own way, but they cannot both be binding for us. We have to choose. And I said last week, Jesus is our ultimate authority, which means this particular Bible verse is no longer binding for Christians, even though it's in the Bible. You wouldn't believe the things people said to me because of that, in all caps. it's shocking that a pastor would say such things, you know, I'm praying for his, the sheep of his flock, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, like, uh, why don't you just write your own Bible then, you know, like, (laughs) take out the crucifixion too, if it bothers you so much, you know, uh, and that's the stuff they said in public, you wouldn't believe the stuff they say in private, and, uh, and, you know, that's just, unfortunately, sometimes what Christians aren't known for, sometimes it's what we, uh, it's, our, it's our default mode. But look, the first Christians that put the Bible together, they were not troubled by these kinds of discrepancies. It didn't bother them that in Genesis 1, the plants and animals are created before the people are. In Genesis 2, the people are created before the plants and animals. It's okay. It's not a threat. You don't have to try and come up with some over-the-top explanation for how it all fits together. Read it. Study it. Enjoy it. Talk about it. Because it's not a threat. If you trust the Holy Spirit, those kinds of things are not a threat. You know, in one of Paul's letters, he says women must keep silent in church. But in another letter that he wrote, Same guy, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote another letter to a different church, and he said, women, when you prophesy or preach in church, you must have your head covered. Both of these things are biblical. I trust that the Holy Spirit used both of those things for some truth in those different contexts, but they both cannot be binding for us as we look at how God wants to use women today in his church. We're going to talk about women in the Bible uh, in a couple weeks. So, we can take a breath we we can we, we can understand that there's no need to let you know that kind of uh, rage take us over. On the other hand, if you're not one of those all caps Christians, but you're more of a, a skeptic, or maybe your skepticism has such has taken hold to the extent that maybe you're uh, cynical about this, uh, you, you know. Um, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think sometimes you can get swept away in your, in your own ideology and your own uh, thoughts as well. So when we talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, I think there are three groups of people that generally come to the surface. And I, I want you to think about which one of these you are, okay? So I'm going to talk about each group in terms of where you stand on the inerrancy of Scripture. And then I'm going to talk about some questions and how each group would answer those so there are the absolutists whose mantra is god said it i believe it and that settles it god don't make mistakes that's the absolutist there's some absolutists in the room i love you i'm glad you're here then there are the skeptics the skeptics say the bible has some good things to offer but it's just too corrupt to really trust you can find some good philosophy in there some good stories you know a good basis of belief but can't trust the bible completely it's made up by men And there's the centrist view of biblical inerrancy that says the Bible is God's perfect word filtered through imperfect men over time. Okay? Now, if you were to ask these three groups of people a set of questions, if you were to ask them, is the Bible perfect? The absolutist would say, absolutely, it's perfect in every sense. In its its form, in its current form. If you were to ask the skeptic, is the Bible perfect, the skeptic would say, just like everything else, the Bible is flawed, the Bible is corrupt, whatever. You know the skeptics, maybe that's you. But if you were to ask the centrist, is the Bible perfect, the centrist would say, in its original form, in its original original shape, the story God wants to tell through the Bible, the message of the Bible, the Word of God is perfect and true. Now, have there been issues over time through translations and things like that? Sure, but the centrist says, what God wants to convey to us through the Bible is true, and it's still there, okay? Now, if you, were to ask, uh, if you were to ask these three people, what is at stake in this conversation? They would answer this question differently. For the absolutist, everything is at stake in this conversation, because if any word in the Bible is not true, then none of it is trustworthy. Because God doesn't make mistakes, if any word of this, if you believe any one word in this book is, uh, is you know, untrue, then, then the whole thing, the whole legitimacy of the word of God is questioned. The skeptic would say, what's at stake in this conversation is my intellectual honesty. What's at stake here is my integrity as an intellectual, because I can't in any you know, frame of mind say, I believe the Bible and then still be a good intellectual and the skeptic really wants to hold on to his intellectual pride. For the centrist, what's at stake here is the notion of absolute objective truth. For the centrist, what matters here isn't the words on the pages as they exist today. I mean, it's all great and awesome. What matters here is that hidden in these pages hidden in these words is the good and perfect plan of God for all of creation it is absolute it is objective and in this world that just tosses and turns from one truth to the next and you have your truth and I have mine and everything's okay there's something in it all that must be true there's something underneath everything that we know and see every day that we must be able to anchor ourselves to. We all know and sense that there must be some objective absolute truth. When we talk about the inerrancy of God's word, the centrist view is that this is what is at stake. Can Christians disagree on this issue? The absolutists would say no. Centrists, skeptics, y'all have no faith. It's my way or the highway to hell you know that kind of thing Uh, you know (laughs) the skeptics would also say no though skeptics would say those absolutists are anti-intellectual they're bigots they're fundamentalists and they don't really get it either but the centrist view is that sure there's room for disagreement on an issue like this so then what about contradictions the absolutist says what contradictions skeptic says the contradictions in the Bible are the result of men's agendas. They are proof the Bible can't be trusted. And the centrist would say, they're not so much contradictions as they are discrepancies. Some of them are due to context. Some of them are due to translations. Almost all of them can be easily interpreted and understood if you really read and understand the Bible and how to read it. This is why people that, the more you read the Bible, the more you appreciate it, almost across the board, the less you read it, The less esteem you have for it so it's obvious now by now where i stand i think that this middle way is the way the early christians read the bible i think this middle way is the way jesus read the bible and i I think you can be an honest uh student of uh, the bible without being a cynical elitist i think you can be a pious and holy christian without being uh, an absolutist right So um, this is the the aim, I think. Because reading the Bible like an absolutist means checking your brain at the door, maybe. It means uh, means ignoring the stuff you learned in science class. It might even mean resenting education and the stuff you learned at college. But, guys, this is important. Reading the Bible as a skeptic means placing yourself in this Intellectual elitism, this world of elitism, where you think your intellect is more trustworthy than the Bible. Now, I believe you're probably a smart person. But to think your intellect is more trustworthy than a thousand years worth of spirit guided writings that have been tested over 2000 years time, tested and proven true by generation after generation of godly men and women. A thousand years of spirit-led writings that have led to the most beautiful songs ever written, the most beautiful works of art, the best hospitals, the most effective schools and universities. Things like AA and NA, the big book based on this book that you think you're smarter than. I love you and I think you're smart, but I think you might need a little bit of a reality check. Because your intellect, as powerful as it might be, is not more trustworthy than this book, despite what you've been told. Now, the Holy Spirit welcomes you to bring your intellect with you to the Bible. Bring all of your mind to the Bible. Be a student of the Bible. The Bible has withstood 2,000 years of scrutiny. The Bible can take your doubts and questions. Bring your brain with you. Don't check it at the door when you come here. You will be shocked by the depth of intellect that this Bible, this book, holds. All right. Um, I want to wrap up today by just saying if you are new to the Bible or if you're coming back to the Bible for the first time in a long time, there's three things I think you can do to read the Bible better. Real quick. First thing I would say is that you can read the Bible in community. 99% of the people who are in heaven right now never own their own copy of the Bible The ability to own your own copy is a very recent privilege one that we take for granted frankly And I'm glad that we have our own Bibles now But that should never allow us to think of our Bible reading as an individual practice The Bible was written by community in community for community Most people that have ever been Christians learned the scriptures by hearing it out loud in community That's why we have all these chapters starting. That's why we have all these classes starting, so that we can read the Bible in community and learn and grow together. The second thing is read the Bible in context. Don't just open the book and read mindlessly. Know what you're reading. Do your homework. Be a student of Scripture. You know, know who you're reading and who they wrote it to and when it was written, under what circumstances, what genre. A good study Bible can answer all those questions for you. Google cannot answer all those questions for you, by the way. Do not Google anything about the Bible, ever. You're going to get stuff from both sides, right? Just, it doesn't work. But a good study Bible can get you there. The third thing is read the Bible in Christ. Jesus is our interpretive lens through which we read both Testaments, old and new. In fact, it's important to remember that before Christians started calling this book the Word of God, this book called Jesus the Word of God. So this is the Word of God that reveals the capital W Word, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ in the flesh. And, and that, that's why this book exists. I think this is how Jesus read the Bible. We have a little bit of evidence for this. There's a passage in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus reads the Bible in public, in community, in community and uh, this is in uh, chapter 4 verses 14 through 21 where jesus goes to nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where by the way let me say this the scroll of isaiah was 11 inches wide and 24 feet long that gives you any idea there were 24 scrolls in every basket and every synagogue had one of these baskets and so he unrolls the scroll And he finds this, chapter 61, the book of Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads this in community. He reads it in context, and then he uh, unpacks it in terms of his own role in it. He rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to them by saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It is fulfilled. I want you to think about everything you've heard the Bible is about. Think about everything your non-religious friends think the Bible is about. Arbitrary rules, mind control, opiate of the masses, uh, uh, religious conversion, this kind of empty piety, this kind of of cookie-cutter religion. I want you to think about all of that, rules that keep you out if you're not normal, rules that exclude you to make you feel like you don't belong if you have a past. That's what many people think this book is about. What we just read is what Jesus said this book is all about, And no matter how you come at this book, whether you're a literalist or not, whether you're a literalist or whether you're comfortable with some allegory and metaphor, what matters is the literal outcome of your relationship to this book. Jesus says there should be a literal outcome of your relationship to God's kingdom. Jesus came to reveal the reality of God's coming kingdom to us, and it looks like what he read from Isaiah. Freedom for those in captivity. Freedom for those in oppression, sight for those who are blind, help for those who are poor. No matter how you come at this book, whether you know every word in it, chapter and verse, or whether you're just beginning, there better be some literal outcome from it. There better be some freedom. You better be accepting the freedom Christ has given you, and then you better be going and setting other people free too. free from the bondage of their own addictions. He sets us free from the oppression of our own arrogance, free from our own tendency towards self destruction. He sets us free from our dependence on self sufficiency and and like we have to have all the answers all the time and everything is up to us all the time. Jesus opens our eyes and sets us free. And that's the greatest thing I've seen happening here at the story. We have moved in the last six months from being a church that gets together and talks about the Bible to being a church that goes out and lives the Bible. And Jesus says, come and read this book however you will. But it better have an effect on your life. As you're set free to set others free, to embody the coming kingdom of God, think with me about the most oppressed person you know. It might be you. Think about the poorest person you know. The person who's blinded most by their own insecurities or their own past, their own experiences, blinded by their father or their mother that didn't love them right. Think with me about the person who's in the most pain. Jesus came for that person. The Holy Spirit gave us this book for that person, for the purpose of revealing God's good and perfect plan for that person's life, and for your life, and for mine, and for all of creation. There is something that's true in this world. There's something that's good in spite of everything you hear on the news. And God's kingdom is on the way. And we know the King. Wherever you are, however skeptical you feel about it all, you know the Holy Spirit is knocking at your heart's door. And I pray that today will be the day finally that you just relent and submit and surrender and say, I'm not in control here. I wanna anchor my truth to the truth of God. Pray today will be the day at last that you say yes. You don't have to say it alone, say it in community. During communion, say a word to someone who's serving communion. Come and see me, your Pastor Gio, after the service. Call on your chapter group leaders or leaders in the community that you know and trust. There are people here that will surround you and walk you through the first steps back to Jesus. Your life matters. God gave us this book to show us that. Let's pray together.